Welcome to the latest edition of the Paddock Pass podcast. My name is Neil Morrison and I'm here to give you your daily or weekly dose of motorcycle racing action and this episode will cover the highly dramatic and interesting French Grand Prix. Now we have uh, dried off our umbrellas, our waterproofs and our welly boots, we've come back from Le Mans, we've taken our checks for hypothermia and we're just about okay and ready to go again for Aragon. Now thankfully that is applicable for me. Is that applicable for you as well Mr. David Emmett, today's guest on the Paddock Pass podcast, David Emmett of motomatters.com. It is uh, applicable to me. Um, it was the, the, we had sympathy rain here, where it was um, absolutely miserable weather. Um, I don't think I'm not sure it was quite as cold as uh, Le Mans because Le Mans looked absolutely horrendous. Uh, but yeah, we did have a couple of days where it just rained from uh, first thing in the morning till late at night. So it uh, it added a uh, for having to work remotely. It added an air of realism. Yes, exactly. And uh, who would have who would have thought? Who would have predicted that uh, we would have had a wet Grand Prix, the first wet Grand Prix since Valencia 2018, at Le Mans in the middle of October? It's a shocker. It's an absolute shocker. In fact, uh, this is going to be an issue for the rest of the uh, for the rest of the races because we're going to Aragon for two races later than we do normally. Valencia, we're at Valencia more or less the same time that we would normally be. Uh, but the cold was an issue in in Le Mans. The cold is going to be an issue in um, Aragon as well, uh, especially with uh, in the mornings with tire selection. Um, so yeah, it's 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 just another sort of you know bit of weirdness to add to a wild 2020. Yes, exactly. It couldn't be more 2020 finishing at Portimao uh, <laughs> in in late November when I was reading somewhere it gets dark at around five to five thirty in the afternoon. So. Yeah, exactly. The schedule is, I, I, I glimpsed at the schedule and the schedule is absolutely bonkers, but just because, you know, they have to finish before it gets dark. So um, it's uh, uh, it, it's all going to be very interesting. I have no idea. And then, of course, we get an extra day at Portimao. We get the, the Friday, I think, is uh, something like an hour and a half of uh, uh, practice or an hour and 20 minutes for all of, uh, for MotoGP and the practices are much longer. And I have absolutely no idea what's going on. Yes, exactly. Just for a change, Steve. Just for a change. <laughs> uh, now, we're getting a little bit ahead of ourselves because that is uh, going to happen in late November. What we want to talk about is what has happened at the, well, more or less the start of October. The French Grand Prix at uh, Le Mans was a bit of a washout. Um, it was a bit of a surprise in that sense because we had uh, three rather uh, unexpected podium finishers, uh, men that have had their own ups and downs in 2020, uh, their own trials and tribulations. But Danilo Petrucci was back on the top step of the MotoGP podium, becoming the seventh winner in nine races. Uh, I think Alex Marquez and him were the 14th and 15th different riders to stand on a MotoGP podium this year. Uh, I mean, this is just uh, what we're coming to expect now, Dave. A different winner every week and, uh, well, the phone book thrown out the window. Well, yeah, I mean, we are sort of rapidly approaching half of the grid, having won a race this uh, the, the, this year. Um, yeah, I mean, it was completely down to the conditions. It was down to the fact that it was a rain race, which really um, shook things up a lot. Uh, Danilo Petrucci got it absolutely right. It's always a gamble with which tyres you're going to choose because you don't really know. I mean, we were uh, talking to people. I mean, I was getting sort of information back from people who were actually at the track and they were sort of like saying, oh, we reckon it's going to rain for 10 minutes and then it'll stop. Um, but it didn't happen that way. It was sort of like raining and then it stopped raining a little bit and then it started raining again. Um, that just makes the your tyre choice a complete lottery and you only find out in hindsight what the right tyre choice was. Um, right tyre choice was a medium front and a soft rear and that was what um, uh, Danilo Petrucci went. But Petrucci just rode a fantastic race. He ended up uh, sort of in the, he's got the lap chart, he led every race. Um, every lap. Yeah, I'm sorry. Yes, every lap he led uh, every lap of the race, and he um, uh, he did it while having to fend off all sorts of other people. You know, um, Dovizioso, Jack Miller, uh, Alex Rins. Um, but he stayed calm. He did what he needed to do. He managed his tyres, and um, yeah, well deserved win. Very popular winner. He's you know fantastic. It was just fantastic to watch. Yeah, it was absolutely superb to watch. And are we doing a, Danilo a bit of a disservice saying that this was uh, completely um, out of the blue, this success? Because he was actually pretty strong over the 
the full weekend in the dry. I mean, he qualified in third. I think after the race, he was saying that yeah, he thought he could get stuck in and have a bit of a, a bit of a go on Sunday if the conditions were dry. Um, I mean, it wouldn't have been crazy to have uh, seen Petrucci on the podium if Sunday's race was in the dry. No, exactly. The the the, the Misano test um, was crucial for him because that was between the two Misanos uh, because they found something with braking, which is helping him ride. Um, that made a difference. He said that that made a difference to him um, a lot at the Barcelona. That really helped there. Uh, it really helped in um, in Le Mans. And as you rightly said, you know, it made a big it made a big difference. He was fast in you know he starts from the front row of the grid, so he's he's in good shape. Now, uh, Le Mans is a very you know it, it's a lot of straight braking. Um, in, and where the Ducatis have really struggled is braking on the edge of the tyre. Uh, Aragon is much more uh, of a track where you are stopping the bike while you've got the, the, the bike leaned over. So there I think we'll see really how much progress uh, Petrucci has, uh, has made. But Petrucci has genuinely made a really big step in this second half of the season, I think. Yeah, yeah, because it, it couldn't have really got uh, a great deal worse. I mean, there were some just, it was just difficult days really, wasn't it? And um, there was obviously some comments there uh, regarding the, the ambience in the team, uh, the feeling of, of losing his ride essentially before he'd even raced this year. Uh, I think he said it started around 12 months ago where I started to understand that I wasn't exactly the flavor of the month in inside the, the Ducati factory. I mean, was this, a, a, I don't know, a, basically... His uh, his opportunity to stick a finger up at the at the factory management and and say, well, I'm still here. There was definitely a little bit of that. Um, the press conference was quite entertaining with um, both uh, Alex Marquez and uh, uh, Daniela Petrucci getting a chance, being asked about, you know, is this answering your critics? And um, then both saying, so, you know, look, this is what we're capable of. This is we know what we're doing and. Uh, uh, People just need to just need to trust us, and we don't take very much notice of what other people say. It was a little bit of um, um, uh, hello, Claudio Domenicali. Yeah, see, I can ride. Um, so yeah, it was uh, yeah, but it was just a really good race. It was a really strong race by by Petrucci, just the way that he managed the whole thing. So, and I think it is. It's building off that optimism from uh, from Barcelona, having the confidence that you've fixed a weakness that was really costing you time. Um, that just gives you, you know, it, it makes you feel better, feel more comfortable uh, more comfortable throughout a weekend. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And uh, I mean, if it was dry, uh, he was starting on the front row of the grid next to Quadraro and Jack Miller. And you have to imagine he would have at least caused some sort of upset to Quartararo, who had superior pace, I think, to everyone uh, in the dry conditions. You have to imagine Pet Petrucci would have been a factor at some point because, you know, he historically has always gone so well at Le Mans. Um, but yeah, great ride from Petrucci, second Grand Prix win. Uh, richly deserves success. And I mean, there was a moment, I think, going into the Shimano Boeuf uh, S-Benz around lap 18, seven or eight laps to go, when I think there was basically four riders trying to get onto the same bit of tarmac. Miller, Davizioso, Rins, and Petrucci. And, uh, well, after that, he just basically put the hammer down. He almost sensed that there was a bit of uh, chaos behind him. And, uh, well, then he really basically lured Rins into that uh, that mistake up at turn three and, uh, you know, held on pretty strongly when Alex Marquez was chasing him down towards the end. Yeah, exactly. Every time he was threatened, he um, uh, he, he responded. He th that's what I mean by managing the race. Um, that moment, Shimano Berth, by the way, my absolute favourite um, uh, uh, corner name, uh, Cow Street. Um, uh, but that putting that to one side, um, what happened there was that you had uh, Petrucci and Dovizioso both trying to outbreak each other and running a little bit wide. You had um, Alex Rins wheeling, missing his breaking point and going into that corner really, really hot uh, while he's in uh, what he, uh, he described as um, uh, uh, when you're in a breaking battle, it's about who's got the biggest balls. Um, and so, you know, you have uh, Rins and uh, Miller doing that. And uh, that turned into a bit of a mess, that, uh, that corner. And Petrucci happens to be positioned best 
uh, came out on top and that was what made the difference. But at that point, Dovizioso's tire was really starting to go off. Um, that was sort of his last gasp at uh, attacking uh, Petrucci. So, um, yeah. Dovizioso, who had gone with the soft front, of course, compared yes. to Petrucci's medium front and yeah. Renz's medium front. Yeah, exactly. So it was... Um, uh, yeah, the, it was the Petrucci came good at the right time, and he managed the the whole thing right. And especially when Alex Marquez started coming, um, because he he was coming really really fast. Um, then the way that Petrucci responded again just dropped his lap time enough, uh, managed it. And it's more it's much more difficult when you're leading in the wet or in a in tricky conditions. When you're the first rider, you've got no reference point. You can't follow anyone. You you have to make you have to be, figure out how much grip there is in each corner and and take the right amount of risk because you know we've seen so often riders leading in the wet and um, uh, suddenly finding that they've misjudged how much uh, how much grip there is and, and ending up in the gravel. Now I want to come on to Alex Marquez, David, because that was a sensational race. But before that, uh, what was the issue with Jack Miller? Because this was another race where it really looked like Jack had it, had maybe something a little bit more. He was just uh, riding quite cautiously behind the guys. He wasn't really showing his hand at the front. Uh, but then we saw the bike smoking. So clearly, some kind of engine issue. Yeah, I mean, basically, Jack Miller got messed up by the rain. What happened was the. Um, the bike they had been riding in the morning during warm-up warm had developed a, a problem. They weren't quite sure about it. Um, and so uh, because there wasn't enough time between warm-up and the race to swap engines, um, they basically had to – they decided to keep the second bike, the, the bike with the engine, which they didn't trust completely. Um, as the spare bike, uh, but that was the bike which got put into the wet setup. And so when it started to rain, um, that was the bike that Jack Miller had to had to go out on because it started raining. I mean, literally what three four minutes before uh, uh, before the the rain was the, the race was due to start. Start was delayed. There was no way that he could have put his good bike into a proper wet setup. Uh, not enough time to sh change the shocks. Um, uh, do all the changes which which they needed. So he went out on the bike with the suspect engine, and uh, it turned out he was right not to trust the engine because uh, just as he was in the battle with Alex Rins, the engine started to let go. And you, if you if you watch the, um, the 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 helicopter shots, you can actually see puffs of smoke start to appear, uh, and then down the back straight towards Shimano berth. Um, yeah, it just let go. It was uh, it, it was uh, over and out and. That was lot lucky not to spray any uh, sort of fluids onto the uh, onto the track. So um, yeah, uh, well done. He was absolutely livid. Didn't want to speak to the press afterwards, um, unsurprisingly. But uh, yeah, he was. Uh, I think he was robbed of the chance of a podium there. Yeah, definitely. At the very least, you would have to say. And Miller, had he won that race, would have been on a uh, hundred points rather than the seventy-five points that he is on currently. A hundred points—that's fifteen less than Fabio Quartararo. So, uh, I mean, Miller, had he won that race, would have been right, right back into contention. Yeah. Uh, so you can certainly understand his frustration. Uh, and also, if he'd have won or uh, even finished on the podium, that would have been another ride a bit between him and Fabio Quartararo, and that would have been one, at least one less point for Fabio Quartararo. So, yeah, it's um, uh, it would have been even closer. Absolutely, yeah. So, heartbreak for Miller. The opposite could be said for his old uh, Moto3 chum, Alex Marquez. Those guys go way back, of course. Um, and Marquez was uh, a sensation. I mean, we know Petrucci is uh, a really capable wet weather rider in MotoGP has shown it time and time again throughout the years. We know that Alex Marquez is a pretty handy wet weather rider. However, doing that in Moto2 is one thing. MotoGP is something quite different. And uh, for me, David, this had some quite almost eerie parallels to uh, Mark's first ever wet weather race in MotoGP at Le Mans back in 2013. I mean, uh, in fact, in some ways, it was it was almost more impressive than Mark's race on that particular occasion because Alex was, I think, 10th at the end of the first lap. He'd climbed eight positions. Uh, he was on the attack from lap number one. He took four or five laps after that to get his bearings and understand breaking markers and where everything should be. And uh, from there, he was just, uh, he was relentless coming through the field. Second place, I mean, no one saw this coming. Uh, no, a podium. No, no one saw coming, and I think also if it had been dry, he would have struggled to get a podium. But Alex Marquez has been getting better 
every single week. Um, he is showing real progress. He said himself uh, um, in the press conference, I'm a diesel. Um, uh, Mark is a, you know, like a nitrous-fueled gasoline engine where he's, uh, the, the, he's up to speed immediately. Um, Alex takes his time to, he's a much quieter, more calm um person and he's, his development is the same you know he's taking his time to get up to speed but the the the, the talent is obviously there. The, the potential is there he showed what he's capable of and it was it was a fantastic ride it was just it was really calm uh, learned a lot learned through the race he has had time on uh, in the wet a little bit he had some time in uh, the Jerez test last November um, uh, where there was a wet session there was a wet session I think at, uh, at the Red Bull Ring and then Friday was wet that gave him some time in the wet but that's totally different to actually doing 25 or 26 laps when you have no idea how the tyres are going to behave how they're going to wear what to expect when the tyres start going off so yeah I mean hats off just just a really really good performance yeah really strong performance Alex Marquez as I said earlier the 15th different rider uh, to be on the MotoGP podium I mean it's basically you're looking towards the end of the season and I mean you could see well I don't know I, I can't think of uh, of many other years where you've had that kind of variation of riders up there um, and uh, well Marquez was was simply fantastic. I mean, um, what I loved was in the closing laps, he was kind of closing on Petrucci um, and basically hacking away at his deficit. And uh, afterwards, he said it was in those laps when he was actually gaining on Petrucci that he had said to himself internally, okay, don't throw it away. You can't crash now. If you crash now, you'll look like an absolute tit. <laughs> Just keep it on two wheels. And while he was saying that to himself, he was still closing in on the leader and Petrucci was saying afterwards his you know his, his tires were really wearing quite badly towards the very end but uh, yeah another couple of laps and Marquez well could even be looking at his uh, his first MotoGP win yeah exactly I mean I think not crashing is is probably one of the biggest uh, achievements because you're staying calm because you are not throwing away a little bit in the same way that Brad Binder once he got into the lead in Bruneau um, you know you have to stay on you have to keep your concentration um, especially in con in conditions like that, where grip is changing from lap to lap, where your tires are wearing much more fast than than in a in, in a dry race. Uh, so yeah, just it was a really mature ride. Yeah, really mature. Um, what are we thinking about Alex Marquez's season as a whole? Because I think. Uh, the temptation is to is to look at Repsol Honda season and just write it off completely. No mark, no party. Um, I mean, the constructors championship isn't particularly uh, pretty reading if you're a, a Honda fan or a Honda employee. I think they're fifth out of six entries. Uh, the team's championship, Repsol Honda, sits ninth out of 11 entries. Only Aprilia and e-sponsor Rama Ducati have less points. Um, but I kind of have the impression that Marquez has been quietly very impressive. Alex Marcus's problem is that is his last name. Um, so he's always going to be compared to his brother, and his brother is um, arguably the most talented rider ever to swing a leg over a motorcycle. Alex Marcus is a really, really good rider, and he is making slow progress. He really, I think, scoring a podium was really important, um, especially for Honda, because if they hadn't have scored a podium, then it would have been the first season, I think their first season... Uh, since the NR500, um, that they didn't have a podium in the Premier class. Um, also, he's the first Repsol Honda rider to score a podium since I think 2017, uh, since Danny Pedrosa, or not named uh, not named Mark Marquez, obviously. Um, he did what uh, Danny Pedrosa couldn't do in uh, in 2018, what Jorge Lorenzo couldn't do in 2019. Um, and he is just genuine. He's slowly making progress. He's doing exactly what, what he was doing. To an extent, I think this, it, it has helped Mark Marcus not being there because taking away that comparison, that obvious comparison, um, if Mark was winning lots of races, then the question of Alex would be, well, Mark's winning. Why aren't you winning? Um, uh, now he's, you know, he's outperforming his teammate every weekend. Um, he's, uh, 
yeah, he's just growing and, and developing and, and progressing. And it's slow, but it's exactly what you would expect from uh, from a rider coming in to MotoGP, riding the most difficult motorcycle on the grid, um, uh, and, and and still managing to, to to make progress and start to, to start to score points. His problem is is qualifying. You know, he's useless in qualifying. He keeps on qualifying around the eighteenth eighteenth uh, position. Um, that's what he needs to nail down next. Absolutely, yeah. There's three things that have really impressed me about Marquez's uh, first year in MotoGP, um, and I'm not trying to say that he's some sort of you know incredible rookie of you know the last ten years or whatever, but just quietly impressive. The first is that um, the first is that basically he's got on with it in in a kind of quiet way. He's worked uh, without really any ego. Um, he's shown humility. In undertaking this task, we haven't heard any hissy fits or we haven't seen him screaming or bad body language. He's just got on with the job. And I think, you know, compared to what went on in that side of the garage last year, that is uh, a lot to be said for that. Uh, the second thing is um, the the when we've had back-to-back races, because it shows that with a little bit more experience and understanding of what the bike does at a certain circuit, if he has a a race weekend's worth of experience already going back again, we see, you know, quite considerable gains. I mean, he was nine seconds faster in the Andalusian Grand Prix after the Spanish Grand Prix. Uh, it's quite difficult to compare Austria because obviously the races were both stopped there. So we don't get a real true picture of how much he had improved in Austria too. But at Mizano too, he was nearly 17 seconds faster than Mizano one. I mean, that is a, that's a pretty sizable leap forward uh, from from Alex. And then the third thing is that he hasn't really been crashing. I think he's had six crashes so far this year. Um, the same number as Quadraro, for example. Um, all in practice. All in practice as well. Exactly. He doesn't crash. He doesn't practice. He doesn't crash in the race. Uh, him and Takaki Nakagami are the only riders who have finished every, uh, every race. And Nakagami is the only rider to have scored points in every race. Exactly. And if you think of Alex Marquez getting to grips with Model 2 in 2015 and 2016, I mean, you're just talking about a rider that, uh, you know, was making mistakes in races almost every weekend. So he's matured clearly from that point and he's, he's a different rider. He's a different figure. Um, so, yeah, I think uh, I think Alex deserves a, a doff of the hat. And, uh, you know, I think it's... Uh, I mean, we've said this about every new rider getting onto the podium this year, but you know, it's the first of many. I think we're going to see Alex Marquez as a as a as a bit of a force in MotoGP in in the coming years. Yeah, exactly. I mean, he's he, he is not his brother, but he that doesn't stop him but from who being. Who is? Yeah, exactly. Yes, exactly. Yeah, that nobody else is. You know. Um, uh, also, I, I I really liked the way that he dealt with uh, the question in the press conference about criticism. Um, that he basically took the opportunity to say. Look, I know why I'm here. Um, I know why I'm in Repsol Honda. Lots of people, all these people uh, are criticizing me. I know how I ended up in the Repsol Honda uh, squad. I know what I'm capable of, and that's it. I'm not going to talk about it. It was just, um, he's very calm. And also, you hear from people who have to work from him that he is, uh, you know, a, a genuinely easy, he's easy to work with. He's easy to get along. He does what he's got to do. Um, he, uh, you know, trains hard, rides hard. He's got everything that he needs to be a uh, um you know a, a formidable a formidable grand prix racer yeah i mean there are he could be a bit of a a bit of an asshole and you would understand why you know he comes from well i mean racing royalty basically uh, but he isn't he's uh, he's approachable he's down to earth he's quite humble um, and yeah as you said by all accounts he's quite a good person to work with um, there's no serious ego uh, following him around um, from A to B in the paddock so uh, yeah uh, kudos to Alex Marquez I mean there are, there are reasons that he beat Jack Miller to a Moto3 title and Brad Binder to a Moto2 title it wasn't just by fluke that uh, he managed to come out on top of both of those particular fights so yeah kudos to Alex Marquez so Dave to the bread and butter of this year to the championship fight we have uh, four riders covered by 19 points it's actually closer than it was coming into Le Mans Fabio Quartararo leads Juan Mir by 10 points leaving his home Grand Prix in France Andrea De Vizioso sits just nine, 18 points back in Maverick Vinales a further point back of Dovi and 19 points back in fourth uh, I mean this was uh, this was 
pretty entertaining because we essentially had three of the championship contenders in a fight on the track for uh, ninth, ninth position. Ninth position, exactly. And it, it got it got pretty pretty aggressive. It's well, it was very twenty twenty, really. Um, the only rider who really made any points up this uh, um, this weekend was Andro Dovizioso, who was battling at the front. Um, Fabio Quattararo, sort of on paper on a dry track, we were expecting him just to disappear because he was so fast and he was so strong. His race pace was so strong, but you know the race wasn't dry, and you, you know ifs and buts won't won't buy you anything. So um, yeah, I think. The other thing is, I mean, Juan Mir, Quattararo came out on top, which was important to him because it meant, you know, like he he gained a point on um, Vinales. He gained two points on Juan Mir. Uh, he extended his championship lead, even if it was only by a fraction. Um, and he held them off. But uh, Juan Mir and Maverick Vinales, I mean, well... We'll talk about Maverick Vinales' start in a little bit, but they both started at the front. Well, they both got caught up behind um, uh, Valentino Rossi's crash in the first corner, which was a uh, uh, a bit of a surprise. They lost a lot of ground because of that, and they had to join at the back. Whereas Fabio Quartararo started on the front row, um, got away cleanly, and then just went backwards throughout the entire race. Um, it was um, an entirely mystifying performance. He didn't really get going until he found himself sort of in a battle with uh, Maverick Vinales and uh, 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 and Juan Mir. That, that was sort of, you know, when it lit a fire in his belly. Um, so, yeah, it was it's honestly a bit of a mystifying performance for Quattraro. Obviously, his first full wet race as well. Um, but it was honestly a bit of a poor performance. Okay, okay. I can uh, see you sharpening your knife there, David. <laughs> uh, I mean, it was interesting that Quadraro on Friday said that uh, basically his plan for that day was not to take any risks. It yeah. was uh, basically to, well, on Friday, we had dry forecast for Saturday's running and for Sunday as well. Um, so I think the rain on Sunday caught a lot of people off guard, um, certainly from what I was hearing in the paddock anyway. Um, and Quadraro, I think, was one of those guys. So was he in, in some ways maybe punished penalized for the fact that he didn't go all in on on friday and, and try to well try to get a proper proper feel of of what the mon track is like when it can be wet on no a I, I, I don't even think it was about um sort of feeling the wet i think it was much more about um i mean it, it makes sense to not use the or, or, or to not go out on Friday because you're looking at um you're looking on Friday you're looking at the forecast and saying okay it's going to be it's going to be wet on uh, or it's going to be dry on Sunday so there's no point taking the risk so yeah it, it was a, it was a, a wise decision but it's a bit like picking tires uh, when there's going to be a rain race because you have no idea what's going to happen you don't know whether it's going to continue raining whether it's going to dry up or whatever um, I think genuinely it, it was just um. Quattararo being too tentative in those early laps. Um, uh, perhaps, as you say, because of the caution, but perhaps he's been told by the team that, you know, if you want to win the championship, you're going to have to stay on board. Um, you're going to have to, you know, not fall off, not lose a lot of points. So perhaps he was he was being too cautious because of that. But the conditions were such that, you know, to, to go fast, to actually be competitive, you needed to push early to get some heat and temperature in, in, into the tyres. And maybe it's also the, you know, the, the, the nature of the Yamaha, that it's, the Yamaha doesn't seem to be particularly good in the wet. And that was something that Valentina Rossi said after the race as well, that, um, uh, you know, the, the bike hasn't been good when it's been really, really wet. So perhaps there's also sort of a, a, a structural issue underlying that, which we, which we haven't uh, sort of, you know, which we can't see. Yeah, yeah. Bad day for Yamaha after looking so, so strong in FP4. Basically, all four Yamahas were up there running pace at the front. Um, however, Quadraro coming home in ninth was the top Yamaha. Morbidelli and Rossi both crashed out and Vinales was, was tenth. So, yeah, Pretty mystifying day overall for uh, the Iwata factory. Now, I want to talk about Joanne Mir, Dave, because, um, I mean, in some ways, 11th place isn't great. And yes, he lost out on the last lap to uh, to Fabio. However, if I'm Joanne Mir or if I'm Joanne Mir's crew chief, I'm telling Joanne right now that that was actually a pretty good uh, recovery from where he was because he lost two points to Quattraro. If it was a dry race, likelihood is he would have lost 15 points or more 
to Quadraro because in the dry, Suzuki had big, big issues. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the, the, it does seem like the Suzuki is still uh, in uh, in trouble around Le Mans, and it does seem specifically Le Mans. Last year, they had similar problems, um, uh, and I think it's fair. I think I think that's exactly right to say that they that they came away that they got really lucky because um, you know Quattararo started on pole. Um, and the Suzuki's started, was it for 14th, 15th? I can't remember, but it was, it was a long way back. Um, they're still having problems, uh, with qualifying. Uh, and they looked, you know, it, it could have been much, much worse. So to only lose two points in those conditions is not bad. And also, you know, Juan Mir got caught up, was one of the people uh, with Maverick Vinales and Franco Morbidelli who got caught up behind um, uh, behind Rossi's crash and were really forced off track and, and down into, I think, 19th, 20th place by the time they rejoined after that crash. So they lost a lot of uh, lost a lot of ground. Were um, uh, definitely had that as a disadvantage, uh, and so to still finish just behind uh, Fabio Quartararo is not bad. And you've got to wonder how that sort of uh, uh, plays sort of mentally for Quartararo to be dropping back a long way and to get away with it, and for Juan Mir to you know feel. Look, we had a bad start. Um, we got knocked off, and I still came back and almost, uh, almost beat Quattararo. So you have to think, sort of like mentally and emotionally, how how does that, how is that going to feel? Especially going to a track where Juan um, uh, Mir feels really, really confident. Yeah, yeah. I don't think Aragon has ever been one of Quattararo's favourite tracks. Um, so that will be interesting to assess uh, this weekend. Um, Another thing for Mir was that he was, along with Alex Rins and Johan Zarco, I think the only guys to go with medium front, medium rear, the two harder options. So he was lost at sea in the early laps. However, once it got to around half race distance, he started posting a pretty good pace. And as you said, he made quite big gains uh, in the closing laps. He was, you know, one of the fastest guys on track. So I think he can also take that from the race and say, look, you know, it started off badly. Uh, it took me some time to work out to get some heat in the tires. However, I can actually ride one of these things in the rain when the tires were coming to me. Yeah, exactly. And that, must be, that must be a big boost as well going ahead where we we'll might have one or two more wet races before the end of the year. It, exactly. And also they they get to look at um, uh, Alex Rins' data because Rins was fast right away, straight from the very beginning. I mean, I think he was... Uh, sort 16th of maybe, on the grid. Yeah, 16th on the grid and then 7th or 8th by the time they get they, they got to the chicane. Um, and he could have won it if um, uh, if he hadn't have made, or it basically been lured into a mistake by Danilo Petrucci. Um, you know, uh, Ringe decided that he could win this, so he started to chase Petrucci and made just a stupid mistake and crashed out. So, um, um, yeah, I, the, the fact that Ringe was fast at the, the, the first start of the race means that it's possible that it's possible to be fast. And, and Mir said after the race, look, you know, it's good that Alex was, was quick because it means we can look at his data and figure out what he did, uh, uh, what he did differently because uh, both Rins and Mir started on the, uh, on the medium um, uh, front and uh, uh, front and rear tires. So yeah, as you say, I think it's, uh, I think it's good for his momentum. Yeah, absolutely. Interesting stuff uh, from Joanne Mir. Uh, salvaging, uh, Pretty bad situation. Uh, well, what looked like a bad situation on Saturday, salvaging that on Sunday. Uh, now, we have to go and we have to speak about Mr. Maverick Vinales because uh, you were doing some digging after the race, David, and you came across something rather quite interesting. Now, Vinales obviously has suffered for quite some time with pretty mediocre starts in MotoGP, and he was trying something a little bit different this weekend. Yeah, I mean, I have to say, um, Maverick told us in the in his debrief after the race, that um, uh, he had been using, uh, they you know tried to start without uh, without using launch control. Um, it sort of I sort of missed it a little bit, but Nikki Kovac, a Hungarian journalist friend, um, she was listening and she's raced herself and she picked up of it and she said, "Are you saying you started without a um, uh, uh, without launch control?" She was obviously flabbergasted, and he explained, "Yeah, yeah, because I've been done it in practice and I felt like I could start better." Um, so I went to the MoGP.com website and uh, um, got the 
audio and listen to it and you can actually hear you can compare the um the vinyala's onboard audio and the quattrara onboard audio so yeah so if you want to compare the noise you can you can literally hear the difference between uh, maverick vinyalis and fabio quattraro uh well here's what fabio quattraro sa uh, uh, sounds like um here's his start from on board what you hear there is the engine being held on at, or at a preset uh, revs which will um which is you know basically the data engine the electronics engineers decide uh, look at the torque curve find where the best possible curve uh, torque is for uh, to get off the line uh, and then they you just pin the throttle let the clutch out and then let the engine sort or let the electronics sort out and manage the uh, manage the power delivery um now compare that with this this is maverick vinyalis's start off of the line What you hear there is him revving, shutting the throttle, revving again, shutting the throttle, getting on and off the uh, on and off the gas, and it's much much messier. Now he said it worked quite well during the um, uh, during the practice starts, not realizing that practice starts aren't really aren't, uh, are in no way the same as a. Uh, uh, as the real start because on the real start you've got 21 other bikes around you and it's absolutely deafening and you can't hear the engine note as well it's much more difficult to manage you can't look at the revs um because your your eyes are fixed on the lights waiting for that to go out um so it was just it was just very very odd and also i think when you're doing practice starts you're only you're practicing against yourself so you're going against your feeling um it's you're not actually racing it you know starting against someone else and being able to see whether you've started faster than them so but it's yeah it's another it's another maverick moment yes another uh, maverick mystery yes. uh, another one of the uh, the many components of the uh, the enigma that is maverick uh, maverick Vinales. um however um another fairly lousy weekend for maverick and uh, you know he's just 19 points back in the championship it hasn't uh, it wasn't a, a complete write-off uh by any stretch of the imagination so yeah, uh, I'm not, yeah it, he's still it, in it yeah exactly i mean he, he got lucky that uh, fabio quattararo had a had a shocking race um and, and when you know and fell back a long a long way but yeah he got a, he got a, maverick got a bad start um ended up uh, I think also getting a bit caught up behind uh, the, the the Valentino Rossi crash, so um, yeah, he was he was punished for that. But he still managed to say I salvage it because he finishes in front of Joan Mir and just one point uh, loses just one point to uh, to Fabio Quattararo. And as he likes to tell us every single year, he absolutely loves Aragon, and we're going there twice. So uh, yeah. Maverick, your time is now, my friend. Your time <laughs> is now. And we're going to cover uh, a couple of news items, a couple of interesting bits of, of gossip and intrigue, and uh, also talk about the start of that Moto2 race. What the hell was actually going on with Joe Roberts? We'll come to that in a minute. And, of course, we'll have our winners and losers from the French Grand Prix as well. But first of all, David, I want to start with the news story and the news item that hasn't really gone away for the past, what, four or five weeks. The rumours that the VR46 team is going to step up to MotoGP have uh, persisted really for uh, for quite some time. Uh, Luca Marini has been linked with Tito Rabat's seat in the eSponsorama Ducati squad. Um, there were some rumors that the VR46 team was actually going to buy out Avintia or eSponsorama Ducati next year. Um, and take Marini with them, basically, put him in there in place of Rabat. At what is the situation? Because there's a whole lot of different, um, well, there's a whole lot of different angles. What do you see happening uh, with VR46, with Luca Marini, and with Esponsorama Racing? Um, well, it's been a, an open, open secret for a while that um, uh, Dorna and Erta have wanted to get rid of the Esponsorama team uh, out of MotoGP. 
um, because, you know, it's a team which has always struggled financially. Um, they've been saved a little bit this year by uh, increased investment from Ducati because of Joan Zarco. Um, and to be fair to them, they've shown that they can, with that extra help, they can be uh, they can be competent because because Zarco has been pretty good. Um, uh, Tito about it obviously brings money. Um, uh, he brings one of the main sponsors, um, and also his uh, father's chain of um, uh, of jewelries uh, of uh, jewelers um, also sponsors the bike or the the the, the team. Um, only you know, there's it looks like there's going to be a. Moto2 champion who would not be able to get up to MotoGP. Um, Luca Marini wants to go to MotoGP. A lot of people want Luca Marini in MotoGP. Luca Marini deserves to be in MotoGP. Uh, What it looks like is going to happen is that VR46 will um, put Marini into the Esponsorama team in um, Tita Rabat's seat now they'll have to bring money to be able to do that uh that should be possible I, there were uh, uh, i think um uh, our spanish colleague manuel patino said you know it, it would cost a million and a half uh, to put him on that bike um they should be able to raise that money um the question is what happens to tito rabat because tito rabat does not want to go quietly um and be shuffled off quietly to world superbikes he has a contract for 2021. Um, uh, then it looks like what's going to happen is Sponsorama will lose their grid slots for 2022. Basically from, from 2022 to 2020, hang on, uh, two, three, four, five, six. Yeah, from 2022 uh, to, to 2026 is a new five-year contract uh, period. Um, uh, Between that's when- Dorna between Dorna and all of the teams. So MotoGP teams and the also the MotoGP factories, they sign five-year uh, five contracts, um, which guarantees the money for the teams and their participation. Um, it looks like Sponsorama are going to lose their, um, their grid slots for the next contract period. And the VR46 team will be given grid slots for that period. Um, then, of course, it, they're... You get into a very interesting little uh, situation where who gets what bike. Um, we've heard lots of different things. I mean, what what have you heard, Neil? Uh, well, I have heard lots of different things as well, David. Uh, I mean, one of those things, one of the crazy rumors is that VR46, when they step up as a team in MotoGP in 2022, will be running Yamaha because of Valentino Rossi's long-running association with Yamaha. Uh, and that would be at the expense of Petronas, who may be moving to Suzuki. Now, that is, that's just a rumor that I've heard, that I've heard uh, several people uh speak and one or two people write on Twitter. Um, however, uh, in Mamo Pacino's story, and I mean, we know that Mamo Pacino is very well linked to Ducati and he has numerous well-placed sources in the paddock. He said that um, that could be a very interesting prospect for Ducati. Um, and yes, Valentino Rossi's own relationship with Ducati was nothing short of disastrous in 2011 and, and 12. Um, however, um, Ducati make good motorcycles. Uh, Ducati is Italian. Uh, Ducati recognized the benefits of having Valentino Rossi themed merchandising and so on and so forth. Plus, the whole point of the VR46 Academy is to bring exciting new young Italian riders through. Now, this also would be of great interest to Ducati. So that does seem to be does seem to be the thing that Marini will step up next year in Esponsorama Ducati alongside Enea Bastianini. And then that team could switch and become the VR46 Ducati team in 2022. Exactly. And then what happens to the Suzuki's? Uh, Grassini um, will be becoming a, an independent team. They are an independent team, independent team running the, Itali- the Aprilia factory um, uh, effort. However, from 2022, Aprilia factory will be running its own team and Grassini will be uh, independent again and be free to choose their own um, uh, bikes. Now, there have been talks, there's been talk of Aprilia running satellite bikes, but I don't think they're going to be ready to do that in 2022. And so it would make a lot of sense for uh, Grassini to be talking to Suzuki. So, um, um, yeah, it's 
that's. I think that it's a bit of a mess. I think. Uh, I think the, the. I mean, I would say there's probably about a 95 percent chance that we'll see Luca Marini on a Ducati in the Sponsorama team in 2021, and we'll see Luca Marini um, in the VR46 team in 2022, um, possibly still alongside Anea Bastianini. Um, whether they're on Yamahas or Ducatis is going to be very, very interesting, and it's going to be very, very interesting to see where the uh, where the Suzukis go. Yeah, it certainly will be very interesting, and it seems like one of the knock-on effects of VR46 putting money behind Luca Marini to go to meet MotoGP is that it will come at the expense of their Moto3 team. Um, now in France, well, before the French Grand Prix. One of their two Moto3 riders, Andrea Migno, uh, it was announced that he was leaving the team to go to Sniper's uh, Honda Moto3 in 2021. And if Marini does indeed step up, it's believed that Vietti, Celestino Vietti, the current, uh, well, leading light of uh, that team in Moto3, he'll step up to Moto2 to partner Marco Bezzecchi. Um And one of the things I also heard is that basically there's not really a lot of exciting young Italian talent coming through. I mean, Italy is fantastically represented in MotoGP and Moto2 at the moment. To a lesser extent, Moto3, but not doing too badly. Arbolino and Vietti are still fighting for the championship this year. But if you look at the junior categories, like the Rebel Rookies, the Junior Moto3 World Championship, I mean, there's not really that many fast young Italian kids at the moment there. Um, So I think... The fact that they're really making a push for Marini to go to MotoGP and the financial implications that will have, plus the fact that there's no young, really exciting Italian talent coming through, it seems that, that is, that's leading to the fact that, well, they'll put their their assets, uh, their efforts behind Marini and MotoGP and, and Moto3 will no longer exist for Sky Racing VR46. But yeah, I mean that's a really interesting point, and it raises the question: What is the VR Forty Six Riders Academy for? If they're not bringing, um, if they can't find fast young Italian kids to be putting in Moto Three, um, then you, you know this this amazing um, uh, conduit of talent which the VR Forty Six Academy has become uh, dries up. Basically, their talent pool dries up. There's no one to go uh, uh, to go through. And it sort of works its, its way out, and they have to start all over again. So it's a, it's it's an interesting it's an interesting place that that the Italian talent is or the Italian racing is in at the moment, because there seems to be almost an embarrassment of riches at the moment with lots of really really good, fast, promising, talented young uh, young riders, um, but then exactly as you say, beyond that, who knows. Exactly. Who knows? Yeah, um, I'll, we'll put our violins away for Italy uh, and their, you know, their efforts in in the world of motorcycling. Just for now, David, because you know, as you say, it's not going too badly at the very highest level. Yeah, I mean, an Italian has just won a MotoGP race on uh, an Italian motorcycle. So yeah, <laughs> things things could be considerably worse. <laughs> Exactly. Now, David, a lot of people have asked us about Moto2. What the hell was going on at the start of the Moto2 race on Sunday? Well, you're the expert, Neil. Uh, you tell me because um, I was uh, busy in debriefs. I've only seen a little bit of the uh, uh, of the start, and it was it just looked like total chaos. So the interesting thing was that Moto2 on Sunday we had a revised schedule, and MotoGP was the second race. Moto3 was the third race. Uh, and at the end of MotoGP, we heard the Ducati riders saying that a dry line was forming and that was just destroying their soft uh, tires, Michelin wet tires. So I think the, the majority of Moto2 guys, they exited pit lane for their, their outlap uh, on wet tires. But then they realized, hey, we need to fit slicks. So they got to the grid and everyone started fitting slicks and, and basically adjusting their setup for dry conditions. Now, I think Joe Roberts, who was on pole position, I think the American racing team maybe tried to do a little too much in too little time. Uh, And they basically tried to change way too many things. Now, after the race, Remy Gardner, who finished second, he was saying that he essentially had a a wet setup, slick tires, but a wet setup. So the bike was far from perfect. And well, the rules state that if you're still making bike adjustments on the grid, when the three-minute board is shown, so three minutes to go until the race start, then you have to leave the grid. So that's what happened. 
Yeah, yeah, exactly. Because I mean, the things that you want to do, uh, or like the big difference in uh, in a wet setup and a dry setup, is the stiffnesses of, of the suspension. Um, because you're not able to do and um, make as much, put as much braking force into it. So you're not able to brake as hard. So you don't have the same sort of um, uh, the, the same stiff uh, stiffness of front forks. So you want to change the fork springs, or at least one of the fork springs, because usually what they do is just change one spring. Um, <clears throat> And then you get an average of the two because the forks are so stiff. Um, you might want to, ch want to change the rear suspension as well. You want to have uh, uh, make the, the the rear a little bit more compliant, so it doesn't. Um, uh, generally, it, it's just more um, uh, gradual. It responds more gradually, so you don't want as stiff a spring. You don't want a stiffer. Uh, uh, you want the damping to be much more gentle. Um, now. Uh, I remember one of the things that I that I saw was someone running towards Joe Roberts' bike with a uh, with, with a rear shock and trying to get a rear shock in. Now you can get a rear shock in reasonably quickly, um, but it's still you know like a, a three or a four minute job. Um, and if anything goes wrong, then you're in real trouble. So yeah, it, it looks like that was that was what sort of caught them out trying to just trying to change too many things yeah exactly a bit of a miscalculation on the part of the american racing team um it seems because other teams knew that they had a very limited amount of time to work in and didn't try to basically you know turn the bike upside down and now that was only one part of the the kind of strangeness because the second part of the strangeness was that joe roberts exited pit lane after the team got his bike ready uh, just in time but I think he exited pit lane. I don't know. I haven't timed it. I might need to go back and watch it to understand exactly the amount of time between the grid leaving for the siding lamp, the warm-up lamp, and Joe Roberts leaving pit lane. But it was a, a big amount of time. Now, I think the first riders were forming on the grid when Joe Roberts was coming down the back straight, coming through the Shimano Buff S's. So we're talking about half a lap behind, essentially. Yeah, 30, and 40 seconds. Exactly. And they obviously have a time when the race is supposed to start. All the bikes lined up in the grid and Joe Roberts still, I don't think, was coming round the final two pairs of rights. So the starter, from the information I've gathered, assumed that all the bikes were there on the grid and started the race on the schedule. However, Joe Roberts then came around the final bends and saw that the bikes were going and actually spoke to Joe this week and he said that uh, he was like, well, what's going on? They're, they're all leaving without me on the grids. He <laughs> Wait is, for me. Yeah, Wait he, for me. He thought there was some sort of weird mix-up and they were going to do two siding laps. So whenever the bikes went the way, you see that Joe's kind of sat up looking, going, what the hell's going on? He thought that basically there was going to be another siding lap. And then it was only when he passed the pit wall, he was like, oh, shit. Right. I need to get my head down here. So, yes. So I think, yeah, a bit of a, bit of a mix-up um, from the American racing team. And then... I think there was a bit of a miscommunication between the guy who was pressing the lights to start the race and, uh, well, not recognizing that Joe uh, was not yet on the grid. Yeah, and for him to finish sixth um, is actually really impressive. Um, you know, he's 20, let's see, what is he, 29 seconds back, but that's ahead of uh, a whole bunch of people who actually started on the grid. So, you know, Di Antonio, Baldassari, Schrotter, Bastianini, um, just, I mean, really, uh, he saved, uh, he salvaged an, an awful lot there. Yeah, yeah, it was a good ride from Joe. A really good weekend, pole position, his third pole position of the year. Um, had it been fully dry, I think Joe would have had a fantastic chance to win. And had he started on pole in the conditions that we had, which were essentially uh, damp but drying conditions, there was a dry line, everyone was on slick tires, I think he would have been pretty tough to beat as well. So, um, yeah, there was obviously a great deal of frustration there. Um, he was pretty angry with the outcome. However, it's another solid weekend. And interestingly, it looks like Joe is off to replace Enea Bastianini in the Italtrans squad for 2021. Yes, yes, indeed. And uh, it also looks like Cameron Bobier is going to be replacing him in the American uh, racing team. So it's it's quite interesting. That is very interesting. I mean, that is something to really look forward to because we've all been looking at Cameron Bobier cleaning up in Moto America for the past couple of years and just thinking, right, what can he do on the world stage? And when he had that one ride in World Superbikes, he did pretty well. Yep. 
And yeah. I think it would be really interesting to see him come across. We've obviously had Jake Dixon step up from BSB uh, in 2019. He's having a, a fantastic season at the moment. Yeah, and uh, uh, Dixon. Uh, yeah, absolutely gutted for him to actually crash out of the lead. Um, again, what we were saying earlier, it is really easy uh, when you are leading a race and uh, to get a little bit overexcited and, uh, and crash out. And he, you know, he was having a fantastic race. Also, Sam Lowe's had a superb race and, and well-deserved win because he kept he just kept calm, stayed on board, uh, was really really fast, uh, and was rewarded in the end. Yeah, yeah. And uh, Lowe's now 22 points back of Luca Marini in the championship. Marini, massive crash on the Friday, walking wounded. Uh, some people were contesting just how wounded he was, uh, <laughs> rather cynically. Uh, however, walking wounded he still is. And two, you know, pretty pretty daunting weekends ahead at Aragon when he's uh, he's not quite at uh, full fitness with, um, you know, pretty informed Sam Lowe's breathing down his neck. Also, Marco Bezzecchi was on the podium as well. So you've got four riders, Marini, Bastianini, Bezzecchi and Lowe's, uh, all within a, all have all of them have a really good shot of the championship this year. Yeah, and also it's a it's really is it makes so very clear how dangerous it is uh, or how costly it can be to be injured in this year in this championship. Uh, if you get it wrong, it can it can really hurt. Absolutely, it can really hurt there for sure. Um, so interesting times in Moto Two, interesting times in all three Grand Prix classes, I must say. Um, okay, Dave. So we've uh, we've covered all that we wanted to cover, uh, with the exception of our winners and losers. Uh, and it's that time where I have to ask you, Dave, who was your big winner from the French Grand Prix? I think you know I'm tempted to say that my big to be very contrarian and say my big winner is um, uh, Takaki Nakagami for finishing I think seventh and uh, ending up fifth in the championship <laughs> just for a very very quietly um, I mean you'd almost ex you know, he might end up winning the championship without ever having been on the podium just by being so incredibly consistent. Um, but that would be excessively contrarian of me. Uh, so I think I'm going to say um, Alex Marquez just because he proved so many people wrong this weekend um, and he was justly rewarded for all of the progress he's made. Interesting choice, Dave. I can't really contest that after uh, basically singing Alex's praises for 10 straight minutes earlier in the show. Um, and also having written a blog about him, I think, on, the, on, on track off-road, which everyone needs to go read. Yes, exactly. Go and read it right now, dear listener, if you haven't already. Well, uh, wait till the end of the show. <laughs> on trackoffroad.com. Go, 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 go. Uh, yeah. Papa needs those hits. Uh, <laughs> so for me, Dave, I'm going to go with Joanne Mir. Um, I'm going to borrow your contrarian hat because you lost your nerve at the last minute. <laughs> uh, and I'm going to say Joanne Mir because, yes, it was, you know, 11th place is, is pretty lousy. Joanne has been in, in sensational form uh, prior to Le Mans. However, I just look at the championship and think it could have been so, so much worse. And on Saturday night, it did look like it was going to be pretty bad, pretty costly weekend for Joanne. Uh, just because... Suzuki were having such uh, profound difficulties in the cold temperatures, in dry conditions. Um, Joanne was saying that basically it was all that uh, first chicken, the Dunlop chicken, the first left, basically turn three. He was losing around half a second there. And I went to the, the sector times in FP4 and he was right. He was losing half a second in the first sector. And he said that was in the first corner alone. He just could not get any heat in the front uh, in the left side of the front tyre. Um, and that was causing him real issues. He crashed there, obviously, in FP3. He looked really down. I think it was the first time this year we've seen Mir look under pressure in FP4. He knew that he was uh, he was in a bad way. Yet, for the reasons we've mentioned earlier, he managed to salvage something. He was pretty fast. He got some good wet weather experience. He was pretty fast in the rain. And that will... That'll, uh, stand him in good stead going forward and uh, yeah he loses just two points whenever if it was dry he probably would have lost 15 maybe 20 points yeah exactly I mean one thing you touch you touched on there which is which is going to be important for the rest of the season I think we mentioned it earlier uh, tires tires are going to be really important because we are racing in temperatures which are right on the limit of what the Michelin slicks can cope, especially first thing in the morning. Uh, this is going to be something to watch for the rest of the season. It's going to be so easy to crash. Um, 
over the, the you know the the, the cold the, the the cold side of the tire. Once we get to Valencia, what is it? Turn four, five. Those two right handers after you're spending all that time on the left hand side, it's going to be really really easy to throw 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 yourself throw that away. Um, end up breaking something. Ending up throwing it could end up deciding the championship. But yeah, I mean, Juan Mir, decent shout. Certainly, um, he got away with it. He absolutely got away with it. Yeah, that was his get out of jail card that he played yeah. uh, at the French Grand Prix. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, your big loser of last weekend, Div. I think I am going to say um, Valentino Rossi because three crashes in three races. Uh, you know, three crashes, of, three crashes of his own doing. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. You know, goes into the first corner. That first corner is horrific and and and, and terrible. And um, uh, I before this podcast, I did a podcast with um, uh, Eurosport and Peter Bomb, uh, technical genius, uh, was saying he thought maybe it wasn't even Valentino Rossi's um, fault. It could have been. It could just be the engine braking because the rear came around. You know, for no reason at all, and it's such a strange little corner. And you—it's the first first corner, uh, the the first left. You've just done the warm up lap. The tires aren't cold. Everyone was sort of—I um, mean, they were sort of tiptoeing around at MotoGP speeds, but they were being uh, having to be that little bit more cautious. Uh, but even then, it, you know, twenty one other riders all managed not to crash in that corner, and Valentino Rossi did. Yes, he did, exactly. I think Rossi had three straight crashes last year as well at the Italian Grand Prix, the Catalan Grand Prix, and then the Dutch Grand Prix. However, the Catalan Grand Prix was when he was skittled by Lorenzo, so technically that wasn't his own doing. The last three crashes have been his own doing. Uh, so uh, unprecedented, I think that is, for uh, Valentino's long and storied career, 24 years in Grand Prix racing. Um, and yes, as you say, it was uh, yeah sad end because Rossi normally goes pretty well in the wet. Yeah, and especially at Le Mans. Exactly, especially at Le Mans. Yeah, yeah, we've seen it there in the past. Um, I still don't quite know who my big loser of the weekend is, Dave. I mean, Luca Marini, in one sense, is a is a bit of a loser because he scored no points. Uh, he lost his momentum from Barcelona, and he injured himself. So that's uh, that's pretty costly. Um, however, I'm going to say. Fabio Quartararo, just because it looked like it was going to be so good, it wasn't really that good. And yes, he brought it home. Yes, he extended his championship lead over Joanne Mir. But considering how fast he was in the dry, uh, I mean, yeah, I think it's, um, yeah, it's it's not, uh, well, ninth place wasn't really anything to get that excited about. No, exactly. I mean, Quartararo dodged a bullet more than anything else. Um, uh, he was... Mm, just too slow in the wet. Um, just, yeah, no no excuses, really. For, for someone who was so fast all weekend, no excuses. <laughs> yes. As David harsh, did, harsh, harsh, harsh. As David takes his knife out of Fabio Quartararo's <laughs> gut, uh, I'm going to bring a halting... I'm going to bring a halt to the proceedings here in the Paddock Pass podcast. Uh, I think that's pretty much it for... The French Grand Prix, uh, they're coming thick and fast from now until the end of the season. Everything in my life at the moment seems to be passing in something of a blur. I don't know whether it's uh, November or December or January. Uh, but what I do know is that we're going back racing uh, this weekend. And that means that we'll have another podcast with you next week. In fact, I think we might even have two because we have a World Superbike final round to uh, to get through. So Stephen Gordo will be uh, hard at work at Estoril, uh, the lucky buggers uh, just outside Lisbon. Yeah, my and favorite circuit. And, and in fact, for every year when the calendar is released, my wife says to me, um, um, is Estoril on? Because it was such a fantastic... Uh, um, yeah, I mean, it's the, the track itself is not superb, um, uh, but uh, there's Cascais on the, uh, on the coast where you have fantastic seafood. We were staying up in Sintra, which is a, uh, the, the, this magical little town on the, on the top of the hill, and you'd, it would be a lovely little drive down the hill into the track. Um, so yeah, uh, cool. Very, very jealous of, uh, of Stephen Gordo. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh, not for the first time. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I, by contrast, will be uh, in the sparse, barren scenery of Aragon uh, for ten days, which you know I must say isn't filling me with a great deal of excitement. But I'm sure once I get there, once I see bikes out on track, everything will return uh, to 
heightened excitement levels. Um, yeah, that that's the other uh, that's the other favorite uh, favorite of Rosha uh, of my wife. So um, because it's such a, I mean, we always go there. Uh, we stay for a week afterwards and go hiking because the um, the little village where we sit up in the mountains is lovely. So uh, yeah, we'll be missing that one. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And Aragon will be missing you as well, Mr. Uh, David Emmett. Um, thank you very much for your company. It was uh, a pleasure as always. And uh, yeah, now is the time to remind you, dear listener, to follow us on our social media channels, Twitter at Pod, facebook.com forward slash podcast, and of course our Patreon page where we have some interesting exclusive content including a recent interview with World Superbike title contender Scott Redding that uh, Stephen Gordo did a couple of weeks back in Magni Corp. Uh, yeah, things like that will be uh, will be posted there regularly and you can subscribe to us and get that content for as little as $3 a month. That's patreon.com forward slash podcast. Um, I think that's pretty much it, Dave. Anything else to say? Uh, no, thanks for, um, uh, thanks for the support, everyone. We appreciate it. Yes, exactly. This is for all of you, all of y'all out there supporting us uh, as we uh, follow MotoGP in 2020 in the time of the plague. <laughs> exactly, yes, <laughs> yes. Okay, so that's everything for this week's show. Thanks very much, guys, for listening, and we'll see you next week. Very good. I don't know why I'm doing that. Is there any need no, to do that? No, not, okay. Not, not really, but might as well. Yeah, exactly. Stick in a little sound effect there, Brian. Yeah. Nice little noise of a... Yes, that. <laughs> Or something like that, if you want.